Good morning. We have two scripture passages. The first is from Leviticus, chapter 19, 17 through 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The second passage comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know his master's doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give to you. For these things I command you so that you will love one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our text this morning is from 1 John, chapter 4, as we continue and actually get close to the end of our uh, study of this wonderful little letter that was written for the express purpose of giving assurance of salvation, confidence to God's people. But it serves also, hopefully, uh, another valuable task, which is to show us if perhaps we've been presuming that we're God's children but haven't yet known his grace. So he's giving us three vital signs by which we can test our spiritual life, find out if we're, if we're alive. And it's crucial uh, at a number of levels, but I think particularly, and I wanna say this uh, as gently as possible, but as clearly as possible, I think that the greatest danger today, that's always bad, but one of the great dangers, let me say it that way, one of the great dangers today among evangelical Christians and often reformed evangelical Christians is the danger of the very thing that scholars tell us John was writing against. It was an early form of what later became known as Gnosticism. And all that that means is gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. So all of the Gnostics, they all were wildly different from one another. But the essence was that salvation consisted of just learning the right things. And that if you learned the right things, you were now in the community, you had salvation through right knowledge. And so often in the presentation of the gospel in the West, even by those who believe it deeply, the idea is given, do you believe these things? If you believe them, don't ever doubt again that you're God's child. That is a form of Gnosticism, if you stop there. 
And people will sometimes say, well, what doesn't Paul in Romans uh, 10 say, if you believe in your, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Yes, he did. And he was writing it to people who had to go up once a year to a temple dedicated to Caesar and take a pinch of incense, put it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And if they didn't do that, they could lose their job, lose their family. Sometimes when it was really being enforced, they could lose their life. So he wasn't talking about somebody just standing up in a friendly group and saying, you know, yes, Jesus is Lord. He's talking about the points in our life where it costs us something. And that's a person whose life is being transformed in deep ways. And that's what John is pressing. He says there are three marks. And the first is, of course, the doctrinal confession, the new way of thinking that says Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed. He's everything that God has declared him to be. But then he says there are two more marks that have to be there. One of those marks is the mark that you love in a whole new way. You love with this agape, self-giving, self-sacrificial love with which you've been loved by the Lord. And thirdly, it flows out in the way that you start desiring to keep God's commandments and they're not burdensome because you realize that all of God's commandments are just, they're not a bunch of rules that God gave us. They are rather pictures of what it looks like to love others and to love the Lord. That's all his law is. It's a picture gallery that you go in and look at to say, oh, that's what it means to love God. This is what it looks like to love my neighbor. And so in this morning's text, we come to the very heart of this letter. And Paul is driving home the most essential mark of all from which all the rest flows. And it is the mark that the Spirit of God is in us, that we've been born anew, that we've been changed, and it's that we love in an entirely new way. And I just have to say that, um, you know, I didn't, I've not just been a pastor 45 years, I grew up in a pastor's family. And in those years, even as a child, I sometimes wondered at some of the folk in church who were considered great saints because of all their biblical knowledge, but who were just the most unpleasant sourpusses you could ever meet. <laughs> and a lot of them didn't get along with their own families. And of course, what John's saying is, if that's you, doesn't matter how much you know, you are not yet born again. So listen to God's word as I read it now. First John chapter 4, beginning with verse 7, we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. We've had a wonderful time of singing God's praises together. And I don't mean to depress you, but I have five points. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through them quickly. What I want to do is they all flow together. Um, and the key is just that you experience the flow of what John is saying here and, and go back and study it and get this into your heart. But I do want to tell you how I think this passage develops. The, the thought about love, this teaching about love. John gives us five reasons that it is absolutely crucial that we love one another. And I'll see if I can remember them. I'm gonna give you all five, and then if I lose my way uh, on my way to the table, you'll know at least where I meant to go. Uh, the, the first is found in the first two verses we read, verses seven and eight. We should love one another because of who God is. God is love. Secondly, verses 9 and 10, the next two verses, we should love one another not only because of who God is, we should love one another because of what God has done for us, because of his love for us. He has given his son in our place as an atoning sacrifice of sin. If God so loved us in that way, we ought then to love one another. Beginning in verse 11, verses 11 and 12, he then tells us that we should love one another because we can't see God and neither can anyone else. And therefore, the way that we actually see and taste and touch and experience 
the reality of God's love and the way that others who need to know him will get to see and taste and touch and experience the reality of God's love is through us. So we love each other because that's the place where God's reality and the reality of his love is made known. And then verses 13 through 16 really flows out of that because he says, this is how we know that God abides in us, that his spirit is in us, that we've been born anew, that we have this new life in us. The way that we know that is in the experience of loving one another well. So we should love one another because in that, as we enter into the love of Christ one for another, we are experiencing the reality of the fact God's in me. I would never love that person after what they've done to me. I would have been going after them. I mean, by nature, I know I've, I've really tried to be a good guy with you and, and smile all the time and make you think I'm a great guy. But just to, to be honest, um, our, our, you know, nobody takes it in the teeth like music people. Nobody's ever pleased. If, if they do one style of music, the people who love a different kind are on them. And then it's, well, I wouldn't do it for all the tea in China. But uh, thank God for them. It takes a tough person to be a music director. But uh, our music director at the church I served uh, for many, many years came to me one day and he said, I know the difference between you and me. He said, um, somebody writes me a really ugly email and I want to go home, get a gun and shoot myself. Somebody writes you a really ugly email, you want to go home, get a gun and shoot them. <laughs> and you know, that's, I gotta confess, that's my first impulse is, you're criticizing me, do you know who you're speaking to? I mean, <laughs> you poor benighted creature, you don't appreciate me. Um, but when we find ourselves loving those people, stepping back and saying, no, look at how Christ has loved me. What, what I have done and what I've been forgiven of, how can I feel that way, think that way about this person who's been going after me? Lord, forgive me. And you begin praying God's grace for that person intentionally. So again, well, I'm preaching it now. We may be done by the time I get to the um, That, I think, is the fourth. And the fifth and final one begins in verse 17 and basically goes almost to the end. We should love one another because in that we find the confidence to face the future even God's judgment. Fear comes from a fear of punishment. And he says, if we are filled with the love of God, if we know that he loves us, and if we are fulfilling his commands by loving one another, we don't have to really be afraid of anything. It doesn't mean that we sometimes aren't anxious. I, I always appreciate the, Paul, the fact that Paul, in one of his letters, is talking about all the things he's facing, and then he says, and on top of all of that, I have my anxiety for all of the churches. And I thought, thank you for that admission of anxiety. But he's talking about that deep, paralyzing fear of the future and of death. And what if God doesn't love me? What if I stand before him and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. He said, if you don't want to fear that, just let his love flow through you. And that's where you enjoy intimate communion with him. Okay, that's where we're going. That's where we just went. Maybe I should just stop now and we should have communion. <laughs> but uh, 
then I wouldn't be a Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> so I've got to just, we're just, we're, we're not gonna take a long time, but I do wanna go back and make sure that we just reflect for a moment. Um, first of all, we love because of who God is. Jesus came to reveal the Father. I think sometimes we get in, in this false idea that the Father really doesn't like me, but thank God the Son puts up with me. He's come to save me. And so every time the Father tries to hit me, the Son is kind of... Jesus said, I have come to show you who the Father is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And why was Jesus always in trouble with the religious people? It was because he always seemed to be spending time with the people that the religious people thought no, no good person should spend time with. Look at the people he's eating with. If he were really a he let her touch him. If he were a prophet, he'd never let that, that woman touch him. That criticism that carries into the church, that idea that God likes the, the winners and, you know, doesn't much care for people that are out on the edges and broken and hurting. Jesus said, I've come to show you the Father. Look at how great his love is, even for those whom you religious people won't love. And so he hammers every one of us in this display of the Father's love. The God of the Bible is utterly unlike the gods of the nations, the gods of the ancient religions who were, you know, fighting each other over uh, getting what they want and manipulating people. No, no. God so loved this cosmos that he gave his son so that he might make all things new. How can we not then love one another? I want to ask you in all honesty, is there anyone in your life right now whom you find yourself incapable of wishing well? Now, I'm not saying we're going to like everybody. We're all wired differently. And some people are not very likable. You know, it's just true. But we're to love them. And it's not talking about, you know, the Greeks have had all different names. Of course, these are Jewish writers, so we need to be careful. But the word that's used here is not eros for the attraction of a man and a woman, wonderful as that is, nor the, 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 the word for friendship, nor uh, there's even a word for I love my German shepherd. Uh, or my golden retriever, that would be storge. It's not agape. Agape is what he's calling us to. And it is a love, loving someone, not for what you'll get out of it. It's, it's wishing someone the very best, willing the good of the other as other, is how Thomas Aquinas put it. And that's a pretty good definition. Willing the good of the other as other, not for anything coming to me. And that's how you and I are called to love because that's how God has loved us, okay? And then it was a self-sacrificial love. He gave his son. I, I don't ever want to give one of my children or grandchildren to anybody or anything. I want them to live, to thrive, to go on. And yet, God so loved 
that he gave, and you might say yes, but he was gonna raise him back up. Yes, but think what he endured on our behalf. People talk about the agony of crucifixion. It must have been agonizing, but there were people who faced it with great courage. Why Jesus' agony in the garden? I remember being a very little child and being unable to sleep at night because I knew I had done something that my parents had told me not to do. And my conscience back then was so tender. I wish it had stayed that way a little longer. But it was so tender that I'd have to get up, go wake up my parents and confess and have them pray with me and say they forgave me, they loved me, in order to be able to go back to sleep. Imagine someone who's lived 33 years or so without ever sinning with a conscience absolutely unsullied, who on the cross bore the guilt and the shame of murders and rapists and abusers, crushing weight of guilt and shame. That's how much he loves you. That's how much. And he says, will you not love each other? And that's how other people get to know him. <laughs> that's what makes it believable. There are honestly some very gifted preachers whom I know, whom I can't listen to, because I know them. <laughs> you know? We have, some, we have some good news and some bad news. Here they both are. We know them because nothing of what they're preaching is lived. They may preach love, but you don't get any love from them. They may preach forgiveness, you don't get any forgiveness from them or understanding from them. Brothers and sisters, you know what turns the world upside down? It's when God's people are out there living it. That reminds me of a story. I'm almost done, I promise. And if you believe that, no, really, I'm almost done. Um, do you remember the huge scandal around PTL, Praise the Lord Network, Jim Baker, all that? I was flying through Charlotte, North Carolina, epicenter of it, the morning that the story broke in the Charlotte Observer. And I was changing planes, and the headlines were the full front crease of, you know, uh, you know Baker's downfall. I thought, this is so bad for you know, anyone who thinks that's typical Christian. And I got on the plane and was, I forget where I was going, but I leaned my chair back and realized I was listening to a conversation of two businessmen, really sharp. They were talking and one of them said, did you see that thing about Baker? Oh yeah, I'm so glad he got his. Isn't that typical, these hypocritical Christians and all this? And I'm thinking, boy, thank you, Jesus. Just. You know, get me all cheered up for this conference I'm going to speak at. You know, this is what's going on. And then, and this is why I think the Lord let me hear that. One of them said, have you asked Mary what she thinks about it? And she said, actually, I did ask her. And she said, I don't believe in Jim Baker. I believe in Jesus. Look at him. And the other one said, you know, she is our best worker. I would trust her with anything. And that was the end of the conversation. 
And I'll bet Mary never knew, but in the moment when the big guys on TV had utterly failed, this one woman who probably at times went home and just thought, you know, why am I still banging my head? I, I, they probably all just think I'm some weirdo. It was her consistent, steady, loving life that had showed them. That's not what it's about. This is what it's about. People experience the truth of God through the character of your life and mine. And that's where we know that we're abiding in him. And that's where we know that his spirit is in us. And that's how we can face the future unafraid. And so I'd encourage you to go back to this text. Get it into your heart. Get it way down deep inside you. And realize that the degree to which we are manifesting to one another here and to the community at large, the love with which we have been loved, is the degree to which we will experience the joy of the Lord and the degree to which those whom the Lord has given to us will think, you know, maybe this is true. I'll put it this way and I'm done. Let's seek by God's grace to live in a way that gives people a reason to believe that the gospel is true. Amen. Amen. If you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him for your salvation, then I invite you to come to this meal. If you're not yet there, I'm so grateful that you're with us this morning. And I pray that the day will come soon when you'll come and taste and eat. But if you are in Christ, this meal is for you. And I invite you to come, not because you're strong, but because you're weak, not because you're good, but because you're in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and you long to love him more. Come because he loves you and gave himself for you. And some are coming now. Thank God for that. We're going to ask you, I'll have the words of institution in a moment, and then we'll ask you when you receive these elements to hold them, and after all have been served, we'll take these all together. Hear these words of institution. Our Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. After they'd eaten, he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, ministering in his name, we bring you these emblems of his body and blood and pray that he will strengthen us with his life.